Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, very excited about this guest this week, uh, Stephen Ridley, uh, founder and CTO at Senrio Inc. Uh, Senrio is playing in the IoT security space uh, and doing some really interesting, fun, fascinating things. How are you, Stephen? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Senrio, uh, you guys started out as exhibitor back in the day when we first met and started talking. You were gonna, uh, you were dabbling more along the lines of. Uh, uh, securing IoT devices or somewhere in the security of IoT device space. But the more I look at what you guys have done uh, over the years and, and the products you've rolled out so far, you're, it seems to me that you're heading in the direction of, of asset discovery, asset management, and handling that for companies that don't know where their IoT devices are sprinkled throughout an organization, whether it's a router, a camera, or all those, let's call it B2B IoT uh, products. Is that a fair assessment of where you guys are and where you're heading? Give me a give me the big picture view of uh, you know what went into creating Senrio and how you've seen this evolved over the the years. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you mentioned, we started as Exhibitor. Uh, we were doing services in the um, kind of embedded device um, security space. That was the niche we carved for ourselves. We were really just a boutique. Um, you know, at our largest, we were eight people. Um, so we um, you know, did mobile apps and, and web apps and that kind of stuff, but we really specialize in binary exploitation and reverse engineering. And so uh, embedded devices is really our, was our focus. And we released a bunch of trainings in the space at Black Hat. Um, uh, we released like the first IoT hacking training, like for consumer devices, um, ARM exploitation, um, a bunch of these different things. So we got known for that kind of work. And then um, it was kind of through that work that we realized um, that all embedded devices, whether it's PLCs to, you know, silly consumer devices, suffer from the, the same kinds of problems. And so Senrio is a company um, that we spun out of at Exhibitor that has, a, has actually two products to secure embedded devices. Um, but the core product that we actually um, sell and have brought to market is called Senrio Insight, which tracks um, and finds IoT devices on uh, uh, customer networks, which can you know be everything from hospitals to manufacturing facilities. So the big value um, that we started to learn from our customers isn't just in um, finding those devices passively, but identifying them really well, because that informs everything, you know, security policy. Uh, operations, a whole bunch of different things. So it's very much an asset management um, or a tool that has asset management value. When you when you when you hear the term IoT, people think about uh, you know all these silly toothbrushes or whatever that's that's internet connected refrigerators and so on. And <laughs> yeah. I, I get the sense from talking to folks that they have no a lot of security practitioners, a lot of important people as well. They have no idea how many of these IoT type devices or let's call it IoT industrial IoT devices uh, humming around the network. Give me give me an example of the list of things you're seeing that someone may not even realize. Uh, that comes with these kinds of security implications that you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's different um, depending on what um, you know what type of environment you're deployed in. I think really the biggest issue is it's awareness, right? Like, just people don't think of certain things as being connected devices. We, we've had some, 
you know, evaluation customers come in the door and say, hey, it looks neat what you're doing, but we don't have any IoT. And we'll say, well, like, aren't you a hospital or don't you have a factory automation? And they say, yeah. So we have like industrial robots. And how are those devices connected? Uh, Ethernet and network switches. It's like, okay, that's IoT. So in the to answer your question, like in the average enterprise, some of the devices that people don't generally think of as being IoT um, are, well, everyone kind of knows connected printers, right? But from there, um, it's usually the VoIP phones, uh, like the actual desk phones on their desk that are connected over Ethernet and use TCP and VoIP and SIP and all these different kinds of protocols. That's IoT. Um, industrial control devices. Um, so there's power control, power monitors, um, companies like Leviton, Schneider Electric, they make these devices that, you know, power on and off, um, air conditioning systems, HVAC, um, they can just control regular power outlets. They're used a lot in enterprise environments. Sometimes you get uh, femto cells on corporate networks. So, you know, when cell reception is really bad, um, the telco will come in and install a little antenna that's bridged to the corporate network. Um, you get all kinds of strange devices, conference equipment, um, sometimes really exotic uh, access control systems. So, like uh, the cam- like security cameras, but also the you know the card readers on doors. Those are sometimes bridged to the corporate network. Um, a lot of these devices people just generally don't think of as being uh, IOT or embedded devices, but in reality they're just running um, they're just running standard, you know, embedded operating systems like Linux or VXWorks or something. So they're very much IOT. And interestingly, all these things you just listed are the ones that never get patched, uh, are very, very difficult to patch. Uh, updating is almost forgotten. Like, you you know, you mentioned the printer, the HVAC, the VoIP system, VoIP phones. We've seen multiple instances of vulnerabilities being reported for these things, but I guarantee you they're not in patch management systems as a priority. Nope. Yeah, I think in some environments even there's like a regulatory or at least policy reason why companies don't want to update. Um, in a lot of places that are very quality control um, oriented, to change the firmware or push an update constitutes a change in configuration. So that would maybe require even, in some cases, a third-party auditing firm to come back in and validate the, you know, the environment is, you know, um, compliant or, or what have you. So um, FDA definitely recognized this recently, and I think this year and last year, um, kind of updated their guidelines for medical devices because this was very much an issue in hospitals where uh, just to perform a firmware update of a device constitute a change in, in configuration. So that would require compliance checks and stuff. So FDA has kind of evolved their 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 guidance on that, but there's a lot of places where that's not the case still, like industrial control, sometimes even just you know privately owned factories and stuff. They're just really uh, nervous about you know, if if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing, like just updating the firmware or changing uh, devices that seem to be working just fine um, actually exposes risk or could, you know, mean downtime, which is, you know, loss of revenue. Where, where does Senrio sit in the network? Where exactly are you putting it? Is it? Are you embedding it on hardware yourself? Can someone grab it and embed it in their hardware themselves? No, we're actually a pure software play. Um, so our... Um, our what we call a sensor is really just a lightweight piece of software that 
collects network metadata and then uh, ship, uh, sends it up to the cloud, dedicated customer cloud instances um, where all the analytics and user presentation happens. Um, and the difference for the way we work is we're not trying to sell hardware boxes. Um, a lot of the, um, you know, the traditional security model is to sell a little for you rack mount appliance thing. And we can do that. We can pre-install it and just sell it, um, you know, as uh, for at, almost at cost for the hardware on a commodity uh, computer or rack mount or something. Um, but in reality, the way our model works is that the sensors are free, right, or extremely cheap. A buck is, you know, how we've priced some of them. So the idea there is that um, customers don't really know what's in their infrastructure or on their networks. So you got to give them a way to, you know, get that data collected in a really um, low friction way. And so if we were charging per sensor, then that that gets really cumbersome. Mm-hmm. So Instead, what we do is just give them these sensors that they can install as many as they want anywhere they need, and then it's just a flat subscription uh, to the data in the cloud. So it's like a SaaS model. And you're integrating with Seams and all the other SOC reporting uh, tools Yep. uh, Yep. to give them that visibility. That's right, yeah. So like another way we were trying to be low friction is not just that that sensor model I just mentioned, but, um, you know, giving... Um, operations teams and, and stuff, ways to plug our data set into things they're familiar with. So uh, we have a Splunk app. We uh, have a partnership with RSA, some of the other um, uh, some of the other kind of SIM vendors. We support all the standard formats like, you know, Ceph, and uh, we can ingest from interesting data feeds like threat feeds, so match assets in your network um, to um, threat feeds that you might subscribe to. So say a uh, devices beaconing out to a command and control network or a botnet, we can match that data set at and push alert right there in our UI. Uh, so we're, we're, we're trying our best to play well with, with others. We even have a Slack app, so you can like, you know, ask Senrio uh, from your Slack chat interface, like, hey, what's this IP address? And then you get back a list of, you know, the identification for that device. It's running this operating system. It communicates with these hosts. And it did this weird thing last week, right? You can do all that straight from Slack, which is pretty cool. Right. So there's that alarm company component. Uh, you know, I talked to Harun Mir from Thinkston. He's doing the same thing with the with the Canaries, just finding different ways to send up the alerts. Yep. Um, uh, and I want to double back on this asset discovery and asset management thing, because I feel like this is, for a security practitioner, the most important thing they can focus on is just knowing yep. what is sitting where. Uh, what needs attention, what is sitting where. And it, it, it just seems like what, what you're doing is the natural, the natural evolution of your company is going into that uh, yeah. uh, as the discovery space. Is that, is, that something you're, is that something you're building, something you're ready to talk about? Yeah, no, it's already built. So that's, that's what's crazy. Is like we came at this as like hardcore exploitation people trying to solve this problem. And then we just discovered, you know, so we, when we were first out of the gate, we would demo these things like, hey, look, we can detect this, uh, this remote exploit on this device with, you know, we're using a zero day. There's no IDS signature for it. Isn't this cool that we can detect it? And, and people were more excited about what it could be used for in addition <laughs> yeah, to all this. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just go, wait a minute, that's cool and all, but wait a minute, you can tell me what's on my network? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like- <laughs> uh, you're you're excited about O'Day and exploitation, and they're like, "Holy crap! I can actually 
get some visibility here. Yeah, we uh, we were deploying with a um, a hospital in the Midwest, and they have like uh, forty eight. Their their estimates forty eight thousand devices under management. So, um, you know, you know everything from um, drug pumps to um, kind of what we call. Uh, fixed function operating system. So running like Windows XP that do does runs a specific app that interfaces with a specific piece of hardware, all kinds of stuff in, in hospital. And uh, we went in in one of our earlier talks with them and we were showing them product and stuff. And their head of IT was was like, are you going to make us like um, input all of our assets um, like with CSV or, or spreadsheet? And we were just kind of like, are you – are you serious? Is that what people are asking you to do? And that's kind of the state of asset management. That's man- the state of asset management today, correct? <laughs> it's so crazy. I mean, even, you know, we were a services company too. And when we would do pen tests, you know, we would go to companies and like when you're defining scope, like, you know, you can touch these boxes, but not these other ones. And that ends up just being a CSV or a spreadsheet that you get from them. And often it's really wrong, right? They just don't even know what the where the current assets on their network are. So it's just amazing to me that it's 2018 and like just knowing where things are on the network is an issue. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's, it's startling, but it's not terribly surprising because um, it kind of goes back to the whole IoT thing, which is that we had this explosion in really cheap connectivity, you know, like these Wi Fi controllers and Ethernet controllers are just so cheap now that they're getting embedded in everything. So, all these devices are joining the network, whereas, you know, years ago, you had to get, like, IT had to provision you an IP, you know? It was, like, a very slower process to getting a device on the network. So, like I said, it's not surprising, but um, it's just really strange to see these really big brands, really large companies, high-impact places, hospitals, factories that make household devices just not know what's on their their you know, their core networks. And not only not know, but not know their, their or not, I wouldn't say not know, let me just rephrase that, uh, not being, uh, not prioritizing the risk um, yeah. from a single, you know, a router that's unpatched or some other piece of uh, IoT thing seeking the network that's unpatched or very, very difficult to patch, which segs perfectly into your RSA talk. Yeah. Uh, just recently, you know, you wanted to, uh, uh, do a real world kind of live demo of how a single vulnerability uh, can compromise the rest of the network. And you know, you, you've done this research into you've you've you had this big bug. Uh, what do you call it? Poison ivy. Uh, devil's ivy. Devil's yep. ivy. Sorry. Yeah. Um, in IP cameras, and mm-hmm. you wanted to see if you could uh, pop that vulnerability, exploit that vulnerability and uh, do lateral movement within a network. Can you yep. just give, give, me, give me the walkthrough of, of this attack path? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that we learned from um, our customers, one, the identification is key, but one of the other things where they tend to be lacking is understanding um, you know, why one device really matters or why the security of a single device matters. Um, you know, as security practitioners, we know like the weakest link is, you know, or the weakest device on your network is the weakest link. The attacker is going to figure out a way to compromise the whole thing through that th- through that weak device. 
But it seems like the average, you know, IT security operations person doesn't really tend to know this. So we wanted to come up with a really simple way to demonstrate this. So we we use the Devil's Ivy vulnerability, um, and that Devil's Ivy vulnerability is also another whole story in itself because it's about supply chain. Because the vulnerability we found in that one camera was not only found to be in close to ninety nine percent of that one manufacturer's devices, so not just IP cameras, but DVRs and access control devices. Um, But then that one piece of code is actually reused through a consortium to uh, thousands of other different vendors. So that vulnerability is, you know, potentially in, you know, thousands of uh, embedded devices. So uh, we spoke about that briefly, but then um, the actual attack path was to compromise the first camera so the attacker exploits that vulnerability gains control of that camera and then from there the attacker needs to kind of figure out where to go next and so we exploit another zero day in a router uh, that we found uh, last year also Uh, and this is in a access point one of the most common uh, home and small business access points routers on the market so, so we, wait, let, let me interrupt you here for a quick second. These sure. are t- these are two vulnerabilities that you discovered, known vulnerabilities. You set up this, uh, you set up this. Let's not call it a demo, but this exploitation mm-hmm. uh, example. Mm-hmm. You're saying two vulnerabilities that you've already had in your pocket. Yeah. Um, this is relevant uh, to everyone, or this attack path is relevant to everyone because we know that these vulnerabilities exist in mm-hmm. in, in 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 volume in both of these places in in these IP cameras because they've been documented cases everywhere, and routers especially which never get updated, which use uh, the default credentials and so on. So th- this attack path that you've set up used two of your existing vulnerabilities. Yep. But it's no stretch to imagine that this this currently this scenario currently exists in every organization vulnerabilities are available publicly available in many cases that's right yeah and that's that's the other thing too is like iot and embedded devices are almost a different class of 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 network entity because of what you just mentioned Um, in the software world we release vulnerabilities and then the company produces a patch and then now you know patches in most cases are mandatory so you know, Microsoft will interrupt your <laughs> interrupt your working session just to, to update you. Um, your phone, your iPhone, you know, forced updates or like very annoying updates. So they nag you until you and up to you update. But these IoT devices, not only are they not auto updating, but there's usually no user in the loop that's going to even know to apply those patches or even how to apply the patches. So um, in the traditional security model, when a vulnerability gets disclosed, it's a great thing, right? Because everything is made current after that. But in IoT, from an attacker's perspective, a vulnerability disclosure is just a new trick. So we basically see in the embedded world that zero days are staying zero days, whereas in the software world, zero days, you know, get 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 eradicated. So essentially, like an attacker can just watch for vulnerability disclosures in the embedded space. And just go out and and profit from them, you know, without being worried that they're going to get patched. So you're 100% right about that. So we we um, we pulled together this chat chain, uh, and then we thought, well, you know, what's an IoT ish thing to do? So um, so not only do we go from the camera to the router, 
But then we thought, well, hey, let's use the camera for what it really is, which is, you know, something to remotely monitor a video feed. And so um, just to kind of demonstrate that, we the attacker accesses the video feed, which is uh, looking at an office network or uh, looking kind of at an office, all the people sitting around at their desks and, and whatnot. And the attacker uses that video feed to watch uh, employees to basically shoulder surf and watch employees log into websites, intranets, and devices that they use just to get their work done. So then kind of the next stage of the attack is that now that the attacker has compromised the router and the camera um, to get access to the network, the attacker uses the, um, uses the video feed to then log into another asset on the network using the network connection through the compromised devices. So then essentially the demo is that the attacker watches a, a, an employee log into a network share uh, device, a network area storage device, uh, watches the keystrokes. Oh, so you're, 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 <laughs> there's, there's some manual uh, uh, work involved here of just pointing the camera to a key keyboard yep. and physically watching yep, yep. Uh, credentials being entered. Yep, yep. And I mean, obviously, we didn't need to do that because at the point that the attacker had compromised the router, they owned the whole network anyway. But, you know, to just kind of further demonstrate the risk that certain kinds of IoT devices pose, you know, if we had compromised just another computer, the computer is not watching things generally. Right. We can show that the camera kind of poses two risks. It's the network-based risk and then also the physical security risk. And so we use that exploited camera to then um, watch keystrokes and then log into a third device. So we, um, yeah, so we go from camera to the router. And then on the router, we actually escalate privileges so that we can access a VLAN, a part of the network that was normally prohibited. So we escalate privileges there and then route our traffic to the network area storage device and then steal um you know, employee files and employee personal information back through that that chain back through the camera interface as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that so. was well, that was pretty uh, <laughs> badass using using the camera connection to do the execution. <laughs> yeah, and so that's thank you for saying that because that's one of the that's the kind of the final takeaway that we wanted for this is that you know this can be an attack like this can be done on a company that spends you know lots of money on security. So if there's an IDS or um, you know, they've spent money on net network access control, NAC products. None of that would have stopped this attack, right? Like this is this is using only embedded devices, um, and um, it's using devices that are usually outside of the security spend for an enterprise. So they're, you know, generally these days it's AV endpoint detection and some network access control, uh, and we bypass all of those technologies. What do you? Uh, how does someone protect for something like this? You, you you just mentioned the security spend isn't looking here. Yeah. Um, and again, again, it comes down to this asset discovery, asset management, and putting it in some sort of risk management pro, uh, uh, policy where yeah. yep. things are segmented. If you were running an organization, how would you go about protecting against something like this? Which is, which is now I would say real world. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I agree. Like that's. Um, so I think you already hit the nail on the head. It's really about knowing what assets are there. But the good news, too, is that embedded devices do fixed things for the most part on the network. Like that network, uh, the camera that we exploited, 
you know, it may be consuming a lot of bandwidth, doing its video feeds to some security personnel or sending the video stream to a DVR that's that's uh, holding that data. But that should be the only thing that that camera does. You know, it should not be getting weird uh, SSH connections at late at night. It should not be calling out to other devices on the network or scanning the network. So from that perspective, embedded devices are extremely, I wouldn't say extremely easy, but a lot easier to, to build behavioral profiles for than, say, your average PC or laptop. So it's not just about identifying the devices on the network, but also about having something that can build some simple network behavioral analytics on top of that data and then just give you an alert. Hey, this thing just made a weird connection or this this network area storage device just port scanned your network. That's, you know, almost dead giveaway um, uh, to a compromise or some kind of weird, weird behavior. So that's stuff that you would want to know about. We now have an Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2017 introduced by Senator Warner. And the legislation requires certain vendor commitments. There's like a four or five bullet points. I want to walk you through uh, these bullet points as it relates to just this attempt uh, by government to put some sort of regulation in place around IoT and cybersecurity. Uh, walk you through a few of these and give me a sense of, uh, is it enough? Uh, will we head towards full-scale regulation? And um, what else needs to be done to put all of this into some sort of uh, uh, reasonable state of security. So the legislation requires vendor commitments that their IoT devices are patchable. Yep. Yeah, I think... Um, what percentage of them, uh, <laughs> of the ones today, would you say are patchable? Um... Patchable is a is a big is a is a loaded word. But yeah, it, it is. It yeah. means it means that uh, the vendor has the ability to ship a patch, and the patch can be uh, pulled down and deployed. Yeah, it doesn't say auto patched. It doesn't say it should patch itself. It just says it that they are patchable. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The devil's in the details for that one because um, you know a lot of vendors do have the ability to patch systems, but you know some of the early IoT bugs we found were actually from the patch management interface. So like on some of the uh, early like D-Link products, um, some of the um, network access cameras, you could actually force browse to the firmware update page as an unauthenticated user and push your own firmware to the device. So, you know, really the compromise there, the exploit is that the attacker backdoors or Trojans a piece of firmware and then force browses and forces the device to update remotely without authentication. So then now that device is running kind of backdoored firmware. So we so even though these update interfaces have been around, the key is like, you know, um, that the app updates are done in a really secure way. And that's a tough thing to do on IoT devices because you know with your iPhone or even some of the uh, Android phones like Samsung, they do. Um, you know, root of trust, so they can validate that the firmware came from the, you know, from the manufacturer and stuff. It's a little bit harder to do on IoT because of just the cost of, of doing that. It requires customized hardware in some cases, um, or a, a specialized software stack. So there's there's a lot of people tackling that problem, but it's not as prevalent yet. So I guess back to your your original question is um, a lot of devices are updatable, but very few. Are updatable in a secure way. Uh, in fact, I, I don't think I've seen any devices, especially consumer devices, 
that do secure updates. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to mention that this is uh, this legislation is attempting to set the minimum security requirements. <laughs> yeah, yep. Because uh, it's clear that it's minimum, and we'll go through it. And then we'll, it, I, I want you to tell me if uh, if this will help in any way. The, the second one is that the, the devices don't contain known vulnerabilities, which is an impossibility. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand how you can word that <laughs> that yeah. way. It, 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 Vendor commits that the devices don't contain known vulnerabilities, which sounds yep. like nonsense to me. But it says yep. if a vendor identifies vulnerabilities, it must disclose them to an agency with an explanation of why the device can be considered secure, notwithstanding the vulnerability and a description. Blah 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 blah. Um, uh, again, this is this is this is something that's impossible to discuss because it's so loaded. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's um it's a good attempt, but like you said, it's uh. It's it's. T- I mean, you could maybe do a exhaustive search of CVEs or something, but like you said, that a lot of these bugs are are. Uh, it's hard to know what what software is really being used, and, a lot, and in fact, a lot of these vulnerabilities come from manufacturers not knowing they're using libraries with known vulnerabilities. So maybe it's good that it's forcing them to look, but yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, IoT is in a speed to market phase, uh, where, as we know, security takes a back burner. The the one that's interesting and I think is useful is that the devices don't contain a hard coded password. I think that's yeah. it sounds almost uh, like a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, but again, in your experience, you're finding this all the time. Yeah, like the Mirai botnet was nothing but uh, a, yeah hard coded passwords and and uh, backdoored passwords and stuff. So it's definitely a good start. Are you are you running into that in a lot of you, you know you mentioned healthcare earlier? Are you running into that in a lot of uh, mission critical business applications? Hard coded passwords everywhere. Oh, are you getting better at that shipping. No, I'd say no. So even like it's weird. Even in the software world, like customized applications, like you know, um, really niche things that look at only certain kinds of maybe health record data or. Uh, image parsers for certain kinds of sensor readings and stuff. And these coming from manufacturers where, you know, on page five of their manual, it says the default credential right there. It's old school, like dumpster diving stuff from back in the day where you'd find, you know, passwords to equipment, uh, like right there in the user manual and stuff. So, uh, it's, I think it's not just an IoT problem. It definitely is. But even in the kind of obscure software world, it's still happening quite a bit. Uh, what did you learn from this uh, project you did for RSA, this uh, lateral movement and actual uh, data ex- exfiltration um, uh, uh, at a high big picture level? I think the biggest thing um, I learned and, um, you know, our, our VP of research, M. Carlton, um, kind of led all this research on our side. Um, so I don't want to speak f- uh, for her, but... I think one of the things that surprised me and, and definitely surprised other parts of our team is how, um, you know, this was implied knowledge for us. Like we kind of always knew this was possible. So for us, it was like a, you know, obviously kind of thing. And um, what was surprising was the aha moments that people had when they watched the demonstration or reached out about uh, some coverage of the demonstration. It's just, it's amazing to me that people didn't really think that this was possible um, or that they didn't, you know, they, or that they are surprised that a certain kind of device 
like a network area storage device is really just IoT running embedded Linux. It's just it's it that continues to astound me. Even when we go do customer deployments, when we show devices that are running Linux that they never knew ran Linux or VXWorks, they're just really surprised to find how much IoT there really is. Yeah, there's still a whole pocket of people there who don't even acknowledge that there is Linux malware. <laughs> I actually just I just read uh, uh, I didn't read the whole thing. I read the synopsis of a study. Uh, uh, academic study trying to figure out the state of Linux malware. Um, and it, it was pretty startling to me how much we don't even recognize how much of that is, is, is circulating out there. How would you describe the state of uh, uh, Linux as it relates to exploitation activity? Oh, my goodness. It is ab- it's abysmal. It's like it's bad. It's really bad. There's a... Uh... It's it's not even just like the so we're seeing like old like Linux two four two six kernels. Uh, we see a lot of embedded Android two, and we're like back on Android version two. <laughs> like you're real, talking about seeing it deployed. Yeah, deployed in products. Like you'll go into a high value like you know factory, and then you'll see um, tons of devices, and then in our system they'll blip as like an old kernel. Like we'll see them tagged and identified by our backend. Um, it's just really, it's really bad. And then on top of that, I think one of the other big things driving insecurity is that um, all you have to do is kind of. I think you can look. Arm, Arm actually publishes their um, their version market penetration. I think uh, like the majority of IoT devices now are, and we're on Arm V8 now, right? We're seeing devices like the majority of devices are Arm V5. Right, ARM v6, which means to those who aren't familiar with ARM that it's actually lacking some of the um, hardware protection mechanisms for code execution. So things like non-executable stack or um, uh, the NX bit or XN bit, mm-hmm. that stuff is missing from that the physical hardware of two products that are still coming to market, which is to me is amazing. So you know we've evolved the hardware and underst- we understand exploitation. It's been encoded into a protection mechanism in the hardware for 15, 20 years now, and products, new products are still hitting the market that don't even have those built in, right? And then on top of that, you're running, like, old versions of Linux, uh, firmware that hasn't been audited, that has simple stack overflows. The whole situation is really, really behind. Um on Windows and on, on, on the desktop operating systems, even on Mac, mm-hmm. uh, there are a bunch of anti-exploit mitigations built in: sandboxing, DEP, NX, ASLR, all the things we've I've written about over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at the IoT space, um, how much of that kind of SDL process you're seeing uh, built into existing products? <laughs> never, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> you're not exaggerating. Be, never. be serious for a minute. I'm dead serious. Like the only thing we see maybe is like code obfuscation or like they, they want to protect the business logic. So they'll do some kind of encryption. But we never see people actually use those. Maybe sometimes you'll accidentally get someone using a version of Android that has that stuff on by default. But I have never seen a manufacturer except for maybe like really, really high value industrial control systems um may, and even in some satellite stuff you'll see it but again like the 
they're only using it to protect the business, right? So it's going to protect the, the DRM content, for example, or on a set-top box, it's going to protect credit card numbers that the user might enter um, to do a transaction through an app or something. But, like, we never see it in general so, use, never. So when, you, when, when a vulnerability is found, you're in your head, it's, it's, it's already exploitable. There's none of that uh, jump roping, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to be like, you know... Uh, don't be too cocky. But yeah, I don't I mean, want... Yeah. Let's talk about it in the general terms. Yeah. In, in, because of the fact that a lot of these mitigations are not built in from scratch. Yeah. In most cases, when a vulnerability pops up, exploitation is not necessarily trivial because yeah. obviously it's, 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 you know, it requires specific knowledge. But yep. exploitation is almost guaranteed. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, I'd say it's fair. I mean, I don't want to be like hyperbolic or anything or like you said, cocky or anything. But honestly, like the even the secure coding practices are just non-existent on IoT and embedded systems. Like, you know, stir copies, insecure uh, memory moving and memory management functions are still being used. Like the basic 1999-2002 developer lessons that we learned on desktop have not made their way to IoT. So really simple stack overflows and usually the only thing that that makes exploitation a little more difficult is just how reachable those vulnerable conditions are so maybe it's post authentication or something so um yeah like there's very rarely do we see a device that we can't find something in and i would say we're not even that you know we're not like Tavis Ormandy level exploiters right we're not that we're not awesome right we're we're okay and <laughs> we're, we're still finding bugs uh, is this? Do you think? Do you think we're heading to a place where regulation, uh, government regulation, will have to fix this? Because we just discussed the existing attempt at legislation is establishing some minimum standards that aren't quite clear and just seems uh, meh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, are, are we heading to? Do you, Do you expect to see the uh, uh, regulation attempting to fix all of these ills down the road? Yeah. Um. So and, and what does that what does that tell us about where we're heading as it relates to the cost of these things? Yeah, I think so. I mean, IoT. Everyone is like you know, especially in the security world, is really down on IoT, like how insecure it is and stuff. But I mean, let's face it. Like a lot of these connected devices make life uh, they improve life for the most part, right? Just the fact that. Um, you know, someone is saving money by not sending an engineer to go look at something they can remotely monitor, you know, everything from traffic lights to medical devices. Like, it's generally improving life. So I, I think um, that's not going to change anytime soon. I think what's really going to – the next stage we're at is that we just need to secure the devices because security is going to be a big part of kind of that next growth ramp up. You know, if we're going to hit those Gartner – um, numbers for IoT pervasiveness, then it's not going to happen without security. So um, I think, you know, FT, I know the Federal Trade Commission's taking some companies to task on insecure devices, like legislation like the one you just mentioned is um, getting more popular. It's becoming more part of the layperson's understanding of IoT and stuff. Um, I think it's going to be multi a multi-pronged effort. I think legislation is really important to uh, get industry to start thinking about it a little bit more. And um, I would also like to kind of see um, from the consumer side, maybe not, I don't think it's good to impede industry, but from the consumer side, it's, I think, maybe even certain types of regulation around 
the types of data that a device will process. So if the device is going to be, you know, um, processing network traffic, for example, that uh, for payment data or um, personal identifying information, then maybe there needs to be a social, a certain amount of security or, or at least a checklist associated with that device before it can go to markets. Kind of like nutrition facts. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, the FDA does that for food just to let the consumer know what they're consuming. Maybe the same thing. Maybe we need like a nutrition facts for consumer IoT. Something like that, I think, is going to really help. You know. Uh- where, where, where is how is Senrio doing uh, on the business side? You took some VC funding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by first-time entrepreneurs or just uh, 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 entrepreneurs with ideas uh, making the decision to go the VC route versus bootstrapping it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he- help me walk through the thinking about some of the pros and cons uh, that you had to uh, uh, noodle in your head. Yeah, I think. Um <clears throat> and just you know just being completely frank here there's um you know we came from a services company so we were very much bootstrap um and you know you can only basically um you you have to prioritize things a little bit differently and i think um one of the things about vc funding is that you um it gives you a lot of room to do things that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. But the biggest value, I think, from VC funding, um, if you find the right investors, which we were fortunate enough to do, is the level of support that you get, um, especially for someone like me who's never, um, you know, really thought about long-term commercialization strategies or, you know, how to structure licensing agreements with large enterprise and how to triage your pipeline and stuff. Like, you know, you could just be standing there like holy like stunt like in shock like holy crap what do i do but having support of um investors and then advisors and stuff has been ex- like a, probably the biggest thing super important right? yes yeah it's been really helpful um but on the other side of things the good thing about bootstrapping a business is that it forces you to figure out your commercialization model it forces you to stay humble and resourceful so there's a weird line between like taking the right amount of VC funding, I think. A lot of people say things like um, this, the term I kept hearing was eat when served. So like basically go out and raise as much as you can. And, you know, I can see why people say that. But I also have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs like Harun Mir who are saying like, I'm going to figure out if there's a business here first, right? Let me figure out what my customers are willing to pay. And by, by kind of building your company that way, and doing those things first, and then maybe I don't know if Harun will never take money, right? Um, I haven't spoken to him about that. Right, but there may be a point where you yeah. know it's been proven out, and you need to take on some funding to like chase this explosive growth and really. Yeah, and that's I think that really is a really respectable way to build a business. Um, so it really also just depends on your product too. Like sometimes you may have a product that's you know out of the gate, it needs enterprise deployment, which requires enterprise support. And those kinds of things. So um, each business is a little bit different, and that's kind of my takeaway too from this startup startup experience is that you know everyone's family is dysfunctional in different ways. You know, like anyone who says their family's perfect is lying, and um, every company's like that too, in my opinion. It's like there's 
you know, your COO may not do what another COO does and your lead, your VP of engineering might be different because everybody's different. And the key thing is finding a way to get your team to work together in a way that works best for you to achieve the goals of the company. So it's not really going to be formulaic for us. Um, you know, the exciting thing is that we took that initial seed money in 2016 um, and then we spent, you know, we're product guys, so we're, we're technical. So we spent a lot of time on product um, and making sure that we're building the right product. And now the exciting thing for me is that I'm just really getting to see customers use it. Um, and then so kind of the next phase for our company is, you know, how to rinse and repeat, make that um, a commercialization strategy that's going to be usable in a lot of different places. Um, and so that's kind of like the next phase for us. But for me, the exciting thing is just like seeing people use product and have that aha moment like, oh, this is what this is what it's doing. Like this has value. Like that's exciting, you know, and that's that's pretty cool. That's awesome. And uh, I've been watching your company from the old days of just training and trying to figure things out to yeah. where you are right now. And, and I kind of get the picture of where you're headed. It, 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 it's really fascinating to see it build. Uh, I, Thank you. I, I, I got to ask you about one last thing before I let you go. Um, sure. And it's this issue of diversity and security, diversity oh, yeah. in our industry. Yeah. It is no secret that you're a black guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I was. It is I sometimes. Was, I say so, <laughs> so. Some people know my handle, and I'm like, when I meet them in person, I'm like, surprise, I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> I was at RSA, and I had a a, a business a, a meeting with a journalist over at the W uh, around midday, yeah. you know, twelve thirty, one o'clock, and there was a line of tables on the on, on one of the little platform things, and it was kind of jarring and startling of what what our industry looks like i don't want to i don't have to describe who was sitting at those tables <laughs> yeah it was it was it was uh older white men in suits um <laughs> doing business meetings and as you walk around you see you see this uh lack of diversity yeah. and i wanted to ask you specifically around your own um experience as a minority in this industry mm-hmm. uh how do you do you experience it? Is it is it in your face? Is it subtle? Um, any sort of negative experience being a minority? Um, negative. It, it's it's kind of strange because it's it, here. I'll, I'll say it's negative in the sense that sometimes you you don't know why you might be in a situation. You may say, um, "Is this guy just trying to get a general read on my skill level or my my competence in my in my field?" Um, is that colored by maybe someone um, that has preconceptions because they're not used to seeing people of color in, um, you know, highly technical roles? So it's negative in the sense that there's you kind of wonder. But my experience has been is that once you kind of show um, competence or, or if you are across the table from someone and you discover that you speak the same language with them, um, that stuff dip- disappears pretty quickly, but it it can be an issue. But people, but the argument is you 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 find it tough even getting a seat at the table to even make that argument. Women say that a lot. Uh, minorities say that a lot. I'm sure yeah. uh, is that what you're experiencing? It's the, it's it's. Uh, I, you have a brand name. I mean, maybe you're not the perfect. <laughs> no, uh, I, I think it is. I think it is an issue. Um, and I'll tell you, like I've been fortunate enough that. Um, I came from InfoSec when everybody was hiding behind handles anyway, <laughs> and no one really knew what anyone looked like. Um, 
So I, I kind of come from that era. Yeah, but you come from a research. Uh, yeah. You come from a research yeah. technical background where people yeah. are hanging out in IRC chat rooms. And, yeah. Yep. And, and it's a different, isn't there a difference between acceptance there versus acceptance at a business meeting table? I th- I think there is. I mean, I definitely, so our, our, um, uh, our VP of research is a female and I definitely uh, observe kind of, um, you know, some of the ways that she's received and there's usually there's like the assumption that she's not the one leading the research in the room. Right. Um, and the, the things like that. And then I've experienced the same thing. Like, um, you know, surely this guy isn't the CTO of this company in just early kind of, you know, when you're first shaking hands and meeting a group of people, there's an, you can tell there's an assumption there. Um, and then sometimes, you know, those assumptions extend past that initial encounter and, to like suspicion like does this guy really know what he's talking about i think the key thing is just like you know be who you are and you know try not to be negative in response to you know people who who act that way um and ultimately like if that's going to be a deciding factor for somebody in in a business arrangement like do you even want to be in business with them you know (laughs) chances are right right so I think that's the other thing, too, is that, like, in, in reality, the nice thing, I mean, I can't speak for other industries, but in InfoSec specifically, it's all about solution. And, you know, certainly with uh, finance and kind of investors, it's about opportunity. So those are the things that people hear first. Um, so if you have a great idea, you know, people are going to want to join it. If you've got a, if you've got a great solution, people are going to want to use it. And I think those things tend to matter more than than diversity. But certainly those first encounters and stuff are definitely colored by I think, um, you know, people's perceptions of either gender or race. And that's unfortunate, but, you know. It's a reality. It's a reality, yeah. All right, Stephen, thank you very much. We can go on and on. Uh, I'm sure there's so much I wanted to talk to you about, but we're already (laughs) up against almost an hour in. So (laughs) I'll let you go by saying best of luck with everything. Yeah. Um, Looking forward to watch the company grow and and see uh, the evolution of your work. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to catch up with you. And it's been been a long time since you and I have uh, hung out in New York. <laughs> yeah, soon, soon. We're both, we're both absconded, so. <laughs> cool.